During World War II, approximately two-thirds of the nine million Jews who lived in, Ju in Europe were executed by the Nazis. That's six million people. Men, women, toddlers, babies, children. In the beginning, they'd machine gun them and push them into pits. But the renowned German efficiency soon devised a much more efficient process and um, they were transported by rail to death camps where they were stripped of all of their possessions, stripped naked, sent into the gas chambers. They were gassed. And then from their dead bodies, they pulled every gold filling because they didn't want to waste anything. And then they are cremated in giant furnaces specially built for the task. It's what the Nazis termed the final solution to the Jewish question. We know it as the Holocaust, and it's one of the worst blights on the history of the world. And as a Christian, it, it's very easy for us to just shake our heads in disbelief and, and ask, how could this have ever happened? In Germany, of all places, where they identified as being Christian, and yet the mostly Lutheran population hated the Jews. Anti-Semitism is what it's called. Um, and anti-Semitism didn't end with the end of World War II. And anti-Semitism wasn't put to death at the Nuremberg trials. It continues today. And even Martin Luther himself, one of the heroes of the Reformation, a man who in this very book of Romans that we've been studying discovered grace and faith, even he was filled with anti-Semitism. In 1543, Luther published a 65,000-word article entitled On the Jews and Their Lies. Um, and others of his works and sermons were filled with venom and hatred against the Jews. In one of his final sermons, he called for the authorities to expel the Jews from their lands if they would not convert to Christianity. And so it wasn't such a large leap then for a nation who held Luther as their spiritual hero to feel somewhat justified in what they'd done to the Jews. They felt that they had the final solution to the Jewish question. Get rid of them. Now, I have to be clear, that wasn't everybody, but in general as a society, that's where it went. And there was a Jewish question. In the Christian church, there has always been a Jewish question, and Paul asks it right here in chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? You see, Jesus came to the Jews, but most of the Jews rejected him and they crucified him and they didn't stop there. They then persecuted his disciples. Consider Saul, a young, zealous Jewish man on the road to Damascus for exactly that purpose. His purpose was to hunt down Christians and have them arrested and possibly oversee their death as what he had done when Stephen was stoned. But on that road to Damascus, Saul was blinded by a bright light and Jesus spoke to him. Saul, 
Saul, why do you persecute me? And from that meeting, Saul himself became a Christian. And this Saul of Tarsus then became a preacher to the Jews. But not for very long, because now they wanted to kill him. He was getting a taste of his own medicine. He used to be zealously hunting down Christians. Now he was getting hunted down himself. And so he took on the Greek version of his name, Paul, and he became a preacher to the Gentiles. And now this Paul, a Jewish Christian, a preacher to the Gentiles, is asking the question, has God rejected his people? They've rejected Jesus Christ. They're rejecting everybody who preaches the gospel. I'm even getting run out of towns, he's saying. But has God rejected them? And his answer is an unequivocal no. By no means. That's how our Bibles translate it. Probably a better translation would be never, never. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then he goes on to talk about a remnant. Does everybody know what a remnant is? I know what remnants are because I've had to go to Spotlight. At Spotlight, they have a little bin of remnants, all the leftover bits from the rolls of, of material and stuff that, that they, oh, nobody's really going to want to buy this. There's not enough because most people might want two or three metres of this, but we'll put a little bit of this, what's left over in the remnant bin, right? So what it means is there's a little bit left over. It's the remnant. Back in the Old Testament... Uh, the prophet Elijah had won a tremendous victory. He'd challenged the, pro challenged the prophets of Baal, and, and so the prophets of Baal built themselves a temple, uh, uh, an altar, and they prepared a sacrifice, right? So they built the altar, and then they put all of the timber there to burn the sacrifice, and I think they kindled it very carefully with, with stuff, so probably all it needed was a spark to set it off. And then they started praying to Baal to, to light the altar and to burn the, the sacrifice. And they danced around and loudly called upon Baal, but nothing seemed to be happening. And then they, they got even louder and louder and they started cutting themselves just to try and convince Baal to do it. And, and Elijah, he's there. I love Elijah. He, he was mocking them. He was mocking them and says, Oh, he mightn't be able to hear you. Maybe you need to call out a bit louder. So they call out a bit louder. And he says, oh, well, if he's a god, he's probably busy. He might be doing stuff. So just keep calling. He might hear you yet. And then after a little bit, he says, maybe he's in the toilet. Maybe he can't hear you because he's in the loo. And, and they start calling out even louder. And they did it from morning until midday. But, of course, nothing happened because Baal is no god at all. But then Elijah calls the people together. It's his turn now. And they make a simple altar out of 12 stones, representing the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And they put the wood on it, and they kill the, the beast and put it on it for the sacrifice. And then they dig a trench around it, and they pour bucket loads of water over the whole thing. So it just douse the whole thing with water, and it fills the trench up with water. And then he prays. 
for God to show himself. And God rains fire down from heaven and it consumes the offering and it consumes the wood and it consumes the water and it consumes the dust and it consumes the rocks of the altar as well. God had proved his presence and his power and his sovereignty and his superiority and Baal had utterly failed. And then at Elijah's word, they seized the prophets of Baal and killed them all. A tremendous witness to, to the truth of God and the falseness of Baal. But when the wicked queen Jezebel heard about all of this, instead of giving glory to God, she became even more determined to hunt down Elijah and have him killed. And even though Elijah had just experienced this, this tremendous victory and he should have been on top of the world, he did a runner. He fled out into the desert and there we find him in the desert moping around and, and he is the picture of depression. He had every reason to be joyful and, and happy about what God has done. But he's just utterly depressed. And he's suicidal. He, he wants to die. Because he says, God, I'm the only one left. No, nobody else is, has stayed pure. Nobody, everybody else has turned to follow Baal and everybody's wanting to kill me. I'm the only one left. That's the way it all appeared to Elijah. But things are not always as they appear. And there might be times when you're in the pit of depression and you think that this is just awful, this is just terrible, there's, there's no way out and everyone's against me. You need to know when you get depressed like Elijah was, things are not always as they appear. God said, you're not the only one left, Elijah. God had kept for himself a remnant. There were 7,000 men who had not bowed their knee to Baal. And just like that, things aren't as they appear now. Yeah, the Jews have largely rejected Jesus, and to, to us it's pretty much a novelty to meet a Jew who is a Christian. Uh, they call themselves sometimes a Messianic Jew. And as far as I know, I only know one or two of them. Probably because of where we live, we don't have a very large Jewish population here. But something else we have to realise is it's not only the Jews that, that we're talking about here with the olive tree. It's the whole of Israel. The Jews in Jesus' day were really only two of the 12 tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, but here, Paul's not talking about the Jews. He's talking about Israel, which is the whole 12 tribes. God's covenant was with Israel. And it might seem now that God has given up on Israel, but he has not given up on Israel. A partial hardening has come upon Israel for a time. And so the gospel has been preached to the Gentiles instead. That's most of us. Does anyone here know if they've got Jewish blood in them? Sorry? Oh, your mum is. Yep. Well, there you go. Okay. So you've got a bit of Jewish blood in you, Scrivo. You're, you're the actual olive tree. <laughs> All right. 
So it might seem now that God has given up on Israel, but he hasn't. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, and so the gospel is now being preached to the Gentiles instead. Verse 28 says, As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. And this might be a bit hard to understand why God would do this, but Israel's hearts were hardened so that they would reject the gospel. The gospel would then be preached to the Gentiles. Many Gentiles are then saved in Christ. And God did this so that Israel would then get jealous of this. Now, we tend to think of jealousy as being a bad thing, don't we? Is jealousy a bad thing? I think we need to understand the difference between jealousy and envy. God can be jealous, and so therefore jealousy can't be a sin, can it? Envy is a sin. I'll, tell you, I'll explain to you the difference. If I see something that somebody has that doesn't rightfully belong to me and I really want it, is that envy or jealousy? That's envy. Envy. So I envied those grafting skills. I, I don't have those grafting skills. I envy those grafting skills. Even though he's very humble about it, he does know what he's doing there, I can see. That's envy. Jealousy is where you are jealous for something that is rightfully yours. So, if somebody was trying to, um, to chat Robin up and take her away from me, I would be jealous. And it would be right for me to be jealous. All right? So you see the difference between jealousy and envy? That, that's biblically speaking. All right. So Israel would be jealous of this because their place as God's people was rightfully theirs, but they didn't have it. They'd let it go because they'd rejected Jesus. And so when they see the Gentiles being included and being brought in as God's people, they can become jealous of this because this is what should rightfully be their position. And it should then inspire them to give themselves to God and and once again be his people. And it seems to indicate that near the time of the return of Jesus, we're going to see much of Israel receiving their Messiah and being saved. Now, that might seem like a strange way to go about all of this. I mean, why would God harden the hearts of his chosen covenant people Um, so that the rest of the world could get a look in. Surely there must be another way that he could have done it. But it tells us here why it happened. And it's so that we can all be on this equal footing. It means that we've all been disobedient. The Gentiles have been disobedient and they'd rejected, rejected God. But God had shown his mercy to the Gentiles and brought them in and grafted them onto the vine, on into the olive tree. The Jews had been disobedient. They disobeyed God, and so they were cut off. And so God would also have to show mercy to them to bring them back in. So God has shown mercy to the Gentiles. He has shown mercy to a few Jews, um, to those who have turned to Jesus, people like Scribo and Scribo. And um, there will be a great outpouring of his mercy at the time when Israel will largely turn back to Jesus. God hasn't given up on Israel. 
He made a covenant with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He made a covenant with David and the Lord will always keep his covenant. Verse 29 says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, I want you to understand, he's not talking about spiritual gifts when he says that. He is specifically talking about the gift of being called. Right? So the gift of the covenant to, the, to Israel, that is irrevocable. So why is Paul telling us all of this now? What's it got to do with us? I mean, most of us, we're Gentiles, it, it, and, and most of the church that is writing to in Rome, they were Gentiles. What's the point of it all? Well, we have to remember that as we read the book of Romans, we're actually reading somebody else's mail. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And if you can remember back to the very first message that I gave in the introduction to, to Romans, the church in Rome almost certainly began as Jewish Christians returned home from the Harvest Festival of Pentecost. So the Roman church had Jewish roots. But then something happened. In the year 49 AD, all Jews in Rome were expelled. The Romans said, you're too much trouble. You're causing too much trouble. We just don't want you here. Out. And every Jew was expelled from Rome. As we studied the book of Acts, we came across Priscilla and Aquila who Paul met up in, with in Corinth. And this husband and wife were Jewish Christians who had been expelled from Rome. But around about the year 54 AD, right, so what's that? Five years later? Five years later, they were allowed to come back to Rome again. And in fact, Paul greets Priscilla and Aquila in this very letter. Right? So the church had a very changing character. It began with Jewish roots, and it was almost certainly the leadership were Jewish. But then the Jews were run out of town, run out of town, and so the leadership had to be taken up by the Gentile Christians. And in those years that they were away, you can imagine that things would have been done a bit differently, wouldn't they? I mean, it used to be, would have been done from a Jewish perspective, but then they were all gone and the Gentiles would have had, having to been, everything would have been done from a Gentile perspective. And so you can imagine the upheaval that church would have gone through when the Jews then come back again. And in, in their society, the Jews continued to persecute Christians. The Romans blamed everything on the Jews. The Jews blamed everything on the Christians. And these national antagonisms and animosities very easily spilled over into the church. And as the church became more and more Gentile and less and less Jewish, the Gentiles started to get a little bit arrogant about it all. And even today, many people today have the belief that the church has replaced Israel. It has not. The church grew out of Israel. In a sense, it is the fulfilment of Israel. And in God's grace, Gentile Christians have been included into the church. And so to the Gentiles, Paul says, don't be arrogant. And the image that he uses to describe it is the olive tree. And we've already been talking about that with the kids. 
The olive tree is the image of Israel. But some of the branches, actually most of the branches, have been broken off. Right? The, the unbelieving Jews, those who rejected Christ, are like the branches that have been broken off of this olive tree. And Paul likens the Gentiles who have been saved to a shoot taken from a wild olive tree. All right? So it's not a domesticated cultivar. It doesn't belong in the garden. In the garden, we have this cultivated olive tree, this, which represents Israel. But out in the bush, he takes a little bud from a wild tree and grafts it in to the rootstock of Israel. Gentile Christians draw their nourishment from the rootstock. Now, of course, the rootstock here is representing the fathers of the Jewish faith, the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They were the ones who God had called, but they find their culmination in who? Jesus Christ. And when we get to chapter 15, we're going to hear Jesus described as the root of Jesse. Right? Jesus himself is a Jew. But we have to understand that the church does not replace Israel. It is included into the promise made to Israel. Douglas Moo, a theologian, says, We thereby capture the necessary note of continuity. The church is the continuation of Israel into the new age, right? God has done something new in Jesus Christ. But it's not a new thing that stands on its own. There's continuity here. It grows out of Israel. So we capture this note of continuity and discontinuity. The church, not Israel, is now the locus of God's work. That means the church is now the means and the place of God's activity in the world. His, his activity in the world used to be directed mainly through Israel, whereas now Israel continues into the church and now the church, not Israel, is the place of God's activity in the world. So there's no room for, for Gentile Christians to be arrogant against Israel. We Gentiles are the newcomers. We're the new boys on the block, new girls on the block. We are included with them in this new thing that God is doing. And Paul sounds a very clear warning that we need to hear. This whole section acts as a warning to believers to continue in the faith. If I was to ask you, is God kind or is God severe, what would you say? Put up your hand if you believe God is kind. Put up your hand if you believe God is kind. Yep, okay, hands down. Put up your hand if you believe God is severe. Put up your hand. Some of you put up your hands twice, and that's correct. God is kind, and God is severe. Verse 22 says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. 
severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. God is kind. We, we know that. And which one of you kids said, sung that out before? Good job. God is kind. You know he's kind, hey? Yep. We know that he's kind because Jesus died for us. What greater kindness could God show to us than dying for us? But he's also severe. The Lord our God is uncompromisingly severe. Only believers, only those who are faithful will be saved. It was true for Israel and it's true for Gentiles too. It came up in a message a, a few weeks ago when, we, when I talked a little bit about once saved, always saved. Some people believe in this thing they call once saved, always saved. They believe that once you've made a commitment to Jesus at any time in your life, you can never fall away. They say that once, once you've become a disciple of Jesus, and if you decide, nah, I don't, I don't want to follow Jesus anymore, if you just disbelieve him completely and, ah, don't want to believe that anymore, well, tough. You're a Christian and you're going to be a Christian until the day you die and God's going to, because God saved you and he's not going to let you go. Well, that may be one of the five points of Calvinism, but that doesn't make it biblical and it certainly doesn't make it true. Far from it, in fact. If God is severe to the Jews who have forsaken the covenant, why would we ever believe that we can forsake the covenant that he's made with us and escape his severity? Why would we ever believe that we could escape the severity of God if we lose faith and stop following him? And Paul tells us that we stand fast through faith. The only way that Israel will be saved is when they come to faith and hold on to that faith. And for us, to live in Christ means that we have been grafted into this rootstock. But he's very blunt and he tells us, but if we don't continue in the faith, we too will be cut off. Just like unbelieving Israel will be, was cut off. Even though we've been grafted in, if we don't believe, if we lose faith, we will be cut off. God's ultimate aim for us and for Israel is for him to show us mercy. That's what this is all about. And while we remain grafted into that rootstock, the Lord will continue to nourish us with his goodness. And so there's a real strong call here to continue in the faith. Today, I just want to finish off in the same way that Paul did, by praising God. Because a fair bit of this stuff, it's actually pretty deep. All this talk about branches being broken off and new buds being grafted in, these images help us to understand. But sometimes we don't understand why. Why would God do it this way? 
I'd do it a different way, we may think. Well, I think Paul probably realised this as well, and that's why he ends with, I guess, a hymn of praise, where he acknowledges that God is far higher than him. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.